Hello, and welcome to Tell Me About Your D&D Character, a podcast where people get a chance to talk about their characters from different role-playing games. I'm your host, Jeremy, and today my guest is Australian author Jack Heath. Jack's the author of a number of different books for a number of different ages, ranging from, from junior fiction for the 9 plus through young adult and adult titles as well, as he mentions in the podcast. And we were having a really good time uh, chatting. Um, most of you, maybe some of you know that I kind of work in the publishing industry as well, so it's surprising that I haven't crossed paths with Jack before, except way back early in our careers, uh, which we talk about as well. And uh, I want to thank Ryan K. Lindsley as well for putting me in touch with Jack, because it was a real, real joy talking to him. I know I say this about all my guests, of course, um, but it was really fun uh, getting a chance to just kind of get into the philosophy of why we tell these stories and i was thinking author's the best person to talk to about something like that so i had a really good time if you enjoy this episode please leave me a rating or review on uh, apple podcasts or share me with your friends if you're interested you can find me on twitter of course which is at tell me about your dnd or you can shoot me an email tell me about your dnd at gmail.com or head over to the facebook page whichever way you want to get in touch that's great Art for the episode is done by Tori Tedeschi and music is by Ploddington Bear. You can also find me on my other podcast of Dice and DMs, which I do with, with Tori and Ben, and we talk about a whole bunch of other stuff with Dungeons and Dragons as well. So on with the episode, and until next time, may all your hits be crits. And we're just kind of talking and chatting. He goes, you know, you have a really calming voice. I feel like you could be like announcing at the SCG, the cricket or something like that. I'm like... Thank you. You know what? I'm going to give that a try. I'm going to get into this whole thing. So, yeah, very yeah nice. why not? Actually, I've got a, a story about you as well, um, which you probably won't remember. Okay. Uh, I used to work at the Dimmicks in Canberra uh, way back in okay. probably about 2005, 2006, uh, just after the lab <laughs> got published. Yeah, right. Okay. Do, it, do it was, you have like longer hair no there was there was jim who had the dreads um and was yeah, a little bit taller than me everyone remembers jim because of the dreads i was the one other guy that worked yeah. there and like see no one remembers me and i i just remember you coming in when, after the lab got published and signing a lot of the copies because that that's what you do um but at the at yeah. the time i was trying to finish a book as well um and mm. i was just like that guy that guy's my nemesis as he's done everything I want to do and he's like younger than me and he's just got a book deal and all this stuff. And of course, every time someone came in and asked for, are there any really good books for, for boys? I'm like, yeah, this one, local author. He's, it's, yeah, just take the book. You'll, you'll love it. It's great. And the silently fuming in the back room was like, it's so successful. It's so annoying. Well, no, it thank was, you. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate the support. Yes. And- I heard you say on uh, the podcast that you did with Ryan that that you had um, that I used to come into your local bookshop and yes. I was wondering which bookshop it was and and uh, trying to trying to work out who you were. But I'm very glad that it's that one because I have nothing but fond memories of that uh, Garima Place Dimmicks. Oh, it was, it's a wonderful shop. It's a wonderful. Still the same owners. Um, still the same owners. Uh, yeah, but they're they're good people and always got a lot of my books on the shelves which i always appreciate <laughs> oh no they're, they're wonderful for supporting local authors it's it's fantastic mm. it's and yeah. i am just now realizing that since i was working from home all day today i haven't actually talked to anyone about books for a couple of days and that's why i'm i'm doing all this and i'm um, speaking all that yeah, too right. instead of actually talking about what we were going to talk about which is is mm. dungeons and dragons 
Right. Yes. Um, indeed. But I mean, that's kind of thing. I was talking before about when when I, I semi met you when I was working in a bookshop. But that was probably I think you got first published when you were eighteen. Is that right? Was that about the, the um, time? It's it, it's. T- I, I don't like thinking that far back either. No. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a long time ago now. Actually, you know what? The book was published fifteen years ago, um, last week. Yep. So, but I sent it to the publisher when I was seventeen, but it didn't actually come out until I was nineteen. So, okay. that's the, uh, there was a lot of editing in between. I liked to pretend at the time that I was some kind of sort of teenage wonder kid genius, but the version that I sent at seventeen, no one would have wanted to read it. Oh, I think there's there's a lot of I feel that there's a lot of D and D campaigns that are developed when you're 17, and like you have all these great ideas, and as you kind of build the homebrew world over the years, you're like, oh, I just I love this, but I need to I need to cut it back because I feel that that's the age when a lot of people have those those um, I guess the inspiration they have that spark of the creativity and think I can create if I'm not going to see the creation of my world around me, I can create another world that I'm going to exist in. I think it's, it's partly, you know, imagination and inspiration, but it's also partly ignorance. Like Mm -hmm. when you're young and you have no kind of experience of the real world, it's much easier to sort of make one up. So I think it's, it's not a coincidence that when young authors are published and they publish their debut, debut novels, they're often set in fantasy worlds or sci-fi worlds or whatever, because they, they, um, you know, they just don't know what the real world is like yet. So, yeah. so they kind of have yeah. to invent one and make it feel authentic. And they also get to build this world that they want to see. They get to go, this is the world I wish the world around me already was. Like whether, it might, maybe not yeah. always, but it's like, if it's a dystopia, it's like, I can see this happening from, from what's going on. Um, yeah, that's right. Sometimes it represents their desires their desires but sometimes it's their fears as well like this is this is the particular thing i am worried about Mm. um and that's that's the case even in so not necessarily futuristic sci-fi but even in fantasy or historical things like people people end up writing about their own concerns Mm. which are by necessity their concerns for the future because um you know no one worries about things that happened in the past we we have a different word for that it's called regret (laughs) you know what i mean like it's someone who's uh i think of kj taylor is a, a wonderful um fantasy writer and her first book the dark griffin had real sort of concerns about um about racial inequality in it. Uh, and so it's this sort of, I, I guess you'd call it like medieval fantasy type thing, but um, you can see her as a young writer kind of exploring her concerns about the world and where it was going via this sort of semi-historical fiction. So mm. yeah, people, people are often um, kind of taking the the bad things at the back of their brain and pushing it out onto the page. And in the case of Dungeons and Dragons, I think uh, that often reflects, sometimes the utopian aspect comes out a bit more, I think yeah. in D&D. Than yeah, it with the magic. In the, uh, the magic. Yeah, exactly. The, the magic people, I guess, not just with the worlds, but with the characters. Like everyone I know who has a D&D character is the person who they don't let themselves be in real life, you know? Mm. That, that's interesting. How long have you been playing D&D or just role-playing games in general? Yeah, um, I came to it pretty late. 
Um, I think I probably started, so I've been listening to Dungeons and Dragons podcasts for, I don't know, five, six years. Um, and then about three years ago, um, I was, uh, kind of in the midst of a pretty bad mental health crisis. And my, my wife, uh, said, you know, I think you should get out of the house, hang out with your friends. Um, you know, you, you need to find some kind of weekly thing that you can do. And I think she expected me to either start playing football or go to a men's shed or something. And mm-hmm. instead I ended up playing Dungeons and Dragons every fortnight with, uh, with a bunch of similarly nerdy friends who hadn't played before either. So all of us kind of had um, observed D&D, but none of us had played it. So that was the, uh, the campaign we started about, about three years ago. And I'm still playing the same character. Oh, really? Because uh, I remember, because um, yeah, when we were, t- I was talking with with Ryan. He mentioned that he joined joined your game, and I was kind of under the impression that you were dungeon ma- or you were running the games for everybody um, at that stage. But that's that's fascinating. We'll talk about that character then. If you're still playing the same character, I feel that yeah, sure. even a lot of people who have been playing even just for five years have gone through a number of different characters. It's the one they try out at the start, and then they kind of switch into something else, and then maybe another game starts somewhere else, and they try that one. So, what? What? Who's the character that you've you've had for these past five years? Um, so the character he started out. He came from the um, Fandolin starter set. So mm-hmm. he's the the halfling rogue. Um, Lightfoot Halfling Rogue character from that starter set. Uh, his name is Han Ultra because that was the um, the beer that I was drinking when I had the character sheet in front of me and had to come up with a name. That's a good and, Actually, um, that's a pretty good name for a Halfling. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, I reckon so. He later, um, <laughs> later in the adventures, he, he married a Halfling woman named Victoria Bitter, but we'll get back <laughs> to that in a minute, possibly. So... Um, you know, he's got a criminal spy thief background, as it said in the the starter set. But one of the things that I've found that's true about both writing and D&D is that you can't come up, or at least I can't, come up with a character fully fleshed out and, you know, write all these intricate details of their lives and the kind of, and their personality and all that stuff ahead of time and then create the story. It always happens the other way. Like you dump this half formed character or less than that quarter formed character into uh, an unfamiliar situation and then just kind of, um, and then just experiment with them and see what they do. And at a certain point it stops being like you controlling them or puppeteering them and becomes more like observing. Like I know what Han would do in this circumstance or that So. By way of describing the kind of um, the kind of creature that Han Ultra is personality-wise, he's um, uh, he once drank a potion of hill giant strength and then headbutted a basilisk to death. Um, the DM was horrified <laughs> because that was supposed to be kind of the main challenge for everyone. Um, but he's had some bad luck too. He has a nasty habit of like jumping out of windows and then trying a magical item that will help him fly that just doesn't work and then you know taking a whole heap of falling damage um, i've discovered that he's he's he would much prefer to sort of lie to someone or charm them or pick their pocket than say murder them um but after he's lost a certain number of hit points he starts to see himself more as a soldier in a war than as any kind of noble um, adventurer. And then, and then almost goes too far the other way. Like he's too quick to, to draw blood. He's 
quite happy to stab someone who may be innocent if it'll get him out of the situation. So I guess deep down, he has kind of a selfish sort of layer. Mm. Um, There's that cutthroat, take no prisoners element that um, I feel suits a rogue very, very well. It's like you're all charming on the surface, but it's all about you at the end of the day. Yeah, that's right. So when when desperate times call, he's kind of the first to resort to desperate measures, <laughs> if, yeah. um, if that makes sense. That's great. And I but like you're that. right. It, it does suit a rogue, and he also has. So he's part rogue, part rake. I guess he has. Um, uh, he, he's always keen to try to sort of seduce his way out of trouble, but has a romantic streak as well. I mentioned Victoria Bitter before, and she was a um, uh, a an NPC who he met in a um, uh, in a brothel in a sort of Western style, um, you know, like old spaghetti Western style saloon type mm. thing. And mm. um, then at the end of that particular adventure, having survived a near death experience, he he like swore to himself, like, if I survive this, I'm going to go back and ask Victoria Bitter to marry me. <laughs> He's just got that this woman who he hardly knew. So He's got that kind of, um, you know, outlandish romantic streak as well. Yeah. That, um, again, that take no prisoners. I'm all in or nothing. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's no sense, even for a halfling, there's no sense doing things by half measures. No. And as I said with D&D, like I have, um, I have a family, like I have a wife, I have two children. Um, I am kind of, I'm, I'm not the only breadwinner in the family but certainly at times actually you know what it's so because i'm a writer there have been times in my life when i've been very poor <laughs> because i'm a very lucky writer and there have been times in my life when i've been not poor so sometimes my wife is the breadwinner sometimes i am the breadwinner we both work for ourselves so we kind of cover one another's backs in terms of uh losses and stuff but i reckon when i started playing um when i started playing uh D and D, my wife was pregnant with our second child, or maybe we were, were at the later stages of deciding or something like that. I mentioned before that it was a, a stressful time for me, but in part that would have been like financial stress. So I feel the need to be very sensible. Like I'm a cautious, sensible person because I have uh, my own future to worry about, but I also have a family to look after, um, particularly financially. So because that was the time in my life when I created Han Ultra and started playing D&D, he became, again, the opposite of me, the sort of person who would go out on wild adventures and be very, um, I mean, all D&D characters are adventurers in one way or another. But I feel like for some people, it, it's about the sort of, smashing your way through hordes of enemies with a sword for other people it's about sort of being a noble and doing the right thing for me it was about play acting as someone who could just throw his life away if he wanted yeah. like to take yeah. extraordinary risks and if the dice rolls mean that he dies then he dies and and that's it and that's fine because it's ultimately just a game so that was sort of what the game was giving me that um that i didn't have in my own life at that stage I feel that a lot of people find that when they, particularly when they first start out and when they, I don't want to say addicted to the game, but it is a little bit, you get that bug and you just keep wanting to play and try new things for it and keep playing is the main thing. Yeah. But that you do find those, just that freedom of going, this is something I need in my life right now by 
experimenting by doing whatever I can't do in the real world through the game. Because I'm thinking now, if you yeah. were creating a character now, would you create someone similar so you can explore those elements of what could be? Or do you think you'd create someone else um, that more suits what's going on with you around in your life now? Um, other than... So uh, in the with the group of people that I play with, um, some of us take turns DMing. Um, so... We've, we've just finished a campaign, we're about to, or just finished a particular adventure, so it's time to swap DM to someone else. And so the new DM knows what I'm about to tell you, but the other players did not, which is that I've asked if Han Ultra can sit this one out and Victoria Bitter can take over. Um, so I've created a character sheet for her. Um, my main impetus for that was just that I've been playing D&D for long enough that you know how you get to a certain level of flow where you kind of, you know which feats your character has, you know what sort of things roll well, and you become quite, well, good at the game, but in a way that sort of reduces the challenge a little bit. Um, so I'm keen to challenge myself again, but also Han Ultra doesn't have any magic and he doesn't have the capacity to learn any magic, which is um, pretty limiting in d and I got a bit jealous of my friends who can do spells and all kinds of wacky stuff that I just can't do. So there's a whole side of the game that I haven't discovered yet. So Victoria Bitter is a, um, a sorcerer who used to be a sex worker, basically, and is now um, married to Han. But, so See, I, I would have thought you, a bard. Yeah, well, I thought about that, but our group already has a bard, and he's fantastic. So, And I was also, when I was looking at her background, there was an option for performer, but there was an also, also an option for, like, merchant. And I thought the, the merchant angle was probably, again, not only maybe more suitable, but more importantly, it's the kind of thing that the group is missing at the moment. Um, so your actual question was what kind of character would I make now? And, well, that's the answer. But the I can tell you why I want to be her on the surface and it's because she'll be able to do magic and, and she'll be quite a lot unlike Han. But really, I think it'll probably be only with three years of hindsight that I'll be able to tell you, oh, this is, this is the kind of person Victoria Bitter is and this is why I needed to be her at that stage in my life, if that makes any sense. No, no, that makes a lot of sense because you really feel that characters develop. You can always have an idea of what they might become, but it's not until they actually get in the situations. I hear, particularly when people want to create a really cool character, someone who, like Hawkeye from the Avengers, never misses a shot. And then the dice yeah. just do not give them that that sort of character. And it's like, well, maybe he thinks he only never misses a shot. And all those ones are just flukes that he doesn't tell anyone about. And yeah, yeah you don't and know. Those quirks, those quirks always make the character more interesting <laughs> yeah. because your first idea as a player or as a writer is never your best one. It's like the complexities and complications of the story that actually lead to the most interesting sort of quirks. And I think that in as far as the, the dice rolling aspect of it goes, often there's a disconnect between the kind of strategy that when you're looking at a, a character and their, their, you know, stat block or particularly their ability scores and stuff, you can kind of, 
it's like peering through a keyhole at them and going like, okay, they're good at this, they're good at this, they're good at this. And you can imagine the sort of person that they might be. But then when you're playing them, you discover that you are the sort of person who tries to say, lie their way out of every situation as opposed to punch their way out of any situation. And you look at the stat block and go, okay, looking at the character sheet and the numbers, I would think this is the sort of person who spends a lot of time punching and not much time lying. But actually the way I'm playing them means that they're not the kind of person I first thought. And then you have to use your athletics skill for less punching and more picking down doors or <laughs> whatever it is. Or, you know, for carrying fair maidens to safety or whatever whatever else it is that it turns out you're into. Yeah, they could be a mountain climber but has never thrown a punch in their life. Yeah, exactly. I remember, I think it might have been the second edition book. I often go off on little tangents about the um, the older editions because I've just been playing for so long. I think it was the second yeah. edition rule book where they gave an example of how you kind of build a character personality. And they said, this dwarf, mm-hmm. we're t- this dwarf fighter we're going to talk about has the exact same stats in, stats in both situations. But in the first one, in their first combat, they ran in and they defeated everyone and they saved the day. And now the player thinks, well, I can do that every time. This is someone who takes charge of everything and goes in um, into, the, into the front line. In the second situation, they do the same thing. They run in, but they get knocked out. And from then on, that character is going to be timid and think, well, after that first instance, maybe I don't want to don't want to be that person in the same in the same situation. So I'm going to hang back and be a bit more sneaky and then just finish people off. And it's the same same thing that you can't tell what a character will be like from the stats. It is like you said, just looking through that keyhole of like at the end of the day, the stats don't really mean anything except what the dice tell you. It's all about what comes from the player that makes the, the game and the characters entertaining. Yeah, I think there's, it's funny how, um, it's not that it's the stats that win out, but sort of hidden parts of your personality, I guess, often the bits that you're trying to suppress. Like, as I said, I created Han Ultra as a, not a throwaway character, but as a guy who could throw his life away. Um, so he, he had the freedom of someone who was, you know, willing, willing to die for the sake of adventure. Um, and I've nevertheless, as I just said, played him when he starts losing hit points, I start getting very cautious. Um, well, if you can describe, you know, stabbing people as cautious, but like uh, I'm, I'm willing to do, to, to sort of cross moral boundaries to save this character that you wouldn't think. Whereas at the other end of the scale, um, there's another character in our group named Cassius Highcliffe, uh, who is a, a sort of temple, um, one of those, Raised in the temple, not a lot of social experience type stuff. He's not from the starter set, although I know he sounds like that particular <laughs> high elf that's in the Fandolin starter set. Um, oh, yeah, but, but the point is, the other night in a game we were playing, the DM had introduced a, a monster that was able to implant itself into our memories and make us think that he was a friend of ours. So um, any any time he touched one of the characters, he would implant a few more memories. And then, um, and, and because of that, he became a very difficult villain to kill. And in particular, because he touched Cassius and Cassius was then you know, convinced that he was a friend of his. And because Sam, my friend who plays the character of Cassius, he always plays his character, even if that means risking his own life or the group. He's, you know, 
doing all sorts of things to try to protect the monster that we're trying to kill, including casting some kind of spell that I didn't even know he had, where he could deduct a whole heap of hit points from himself and give double that number of hit points to, to the villain. So the villain, we killed it, he revived it with one hit point, then he cast this spell to give it all these extra hit points and lose a whole bunch of his. And so... Han, me, decided that, okay, we're never going to be able to kill this monster if Cassius keeps protecting it. So I just bludgeoned Cassius with a mace and dealt some non-lethal damage to, to knock him unconscious. But then Sam, the player of Cassius, was really kind of pushing the DM to, to be able to make death checks, even though it was like non-lethal damage or... At least, uh, and the DM's like, no, it was non-lethal damage, but if you, let's say if you fail three checks, you fall into a magical sleep. And he's like, okay, and he really wants to make those checks. And so the, the point of this story is just that Han was created as a character who was supposed to be able to throw his life away. Um, but nevertheless, I was willing to sort of bludgeon a friend to save the group. Whereas my friend, who is you know much more cautious and sensible um, typically, was it was like he was trying to kill his character, like he has a death wish, <laughs> kind of. And these are the sorts of things that it's not in the stat block and it's not in the player's intention. It comes from somewhere subconscious. It's something that the, the game is a sort of litmus test for something. I don't know what exactly, but something. I think sometimes it's just, what do I think would be cool in the moment? What would suit this this moment really well? I mean, it's not always the case, but that that element. I mean, I can see that of someone getting taken over by a monster and having to be killed by their friends so that this creature, this this monster, will be defeated. It's like that. Yeah, there's a lot of pathos there. You get some some really some real stuff going on. If they die, if they survive, then there's a lot of drama as well. It's like you hit me, yeah, but you were possessed. It's like, well, yeah, but you could have done something else. Well, no, we couldn't. <laughs> But it's it's yeah, that opportunity well, for role playing. <laughs> that might be um, the you've uncovered the other reason that I would like to be Victoria Bitter in the next adventure. I think Cassius is not going to be happy with Han <laughs> next time he sees him. Might be better for Han to sit the next one out. And I don't know whether Sam is unhappy with me because that you know took him out of the latter half of the adventure, knocking him unconscious. But I'm like, oh, sorry, buddy, you played your character, I played mine. But I like that um, that since since Victoria Bitter and, and Han are connected, he can kind of transfer the animosity to it's like, well, I'm mad at your husband, but I'm going to take it out on you just as much if they if he <laughs> wants to wants to do that. Yeah, maybe we'll. Um, I, it's, it's interesting playing a new character. You're kind of not sure how your character will get on with the rest of the party. You know, which is not to say that I'm going to deliberately, you know, not get along with them to try to shake things up. I'm, I'm going to try to fit in smoothly. But one of the things I kind of expected when I was playing early on, particularly when I was DMing and often giving players their backstories, you kind of expect interpersonal drama between the the, the characters and therefore the players. You You expect them to sort of reveal their secrets to one another or to hide certain things or whatever. But it's always amazing to me how everyone kind of just pivots towards the challenge at hand. You know, they don't necessarily, um, uh, they're, they're reluctant to fight each other even when it makes sense. They, they sort of unite as a group when you don't expect them to. And I think 
for me, that's sort of the real appeal of, of playing D&D, at least the way that we play, is that it is ultimately a social experience. You know, when, when you talk about the reasons that you do the the things that the characters do, um, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, you want to make the other players laugh or um, you want to give them an opportunity to do the the cool kind of thing that you've seen them done in, do in previous adventures and stuff like that. I think you're right there that it is that that element of you want the the story to continue with these characters and I think mm-hmm. um I mean obviously in the real world we're not allowed to to beat someone up we don't like but if you're an adventuring mm-hmm. party who is going out and murdering monsters it's like I feel that the level of violence for them is slightly different and they may end up murdering people they don't like but to not do it creates so much more drama and yeah. it's kind of that storytelling element of what is going to be the most dramatic next step? It's like killing the villain early mm. on. I mean, that's that's great. Problem is solved, but it's not dramatic. Yeah, and there's also this element of um, fantasy about it too. Like uh, when, when you look at sort of really violent movies or, well, I, I don't have a TV, so I don't watch movies anymore, but um, I still read a lot of books. And I just finished, uh, what's it called? The Devils You Know by Ben Sanders, which I love. Um, And in it, it's a pretty violent noir crime thriller. Like it's set in present day, but has a really sort of vintage feel under the hood. And um, there's a lot of kind of machismo and, you know, uh, men sort of um, threatening to hit one another and... uh, uh, classy dame who needs rescuing but um also you know has a bit of the femme fatale about her as well and all all that stuff so it's you know raymond chandler-ish but but said in present but it got me thinking um it does that thing where you have some villains who are despicable and then some heroes who then visit violence upon those villains and I feel like the people who most enjoy that kind of story, um, the kind where the hero just murders all the bad people, are the ones who understand that the world isn't that simple. Like, if you think that in real life um, doing good is as simple as doing bad things to bad people, then that kind of person wouldn't necessarily enjoy that kind of book. But a sort of more... uh, Primitive is the wrong word. Uh, not a less primitive, a less primal sort of person who is who is always dithering about and going, oh, well, everything's complicated and, you know, extenuating circumstances and blah, blah, blah. That sort of person can really put their feet up and devour a novel where it is as simple as just punching all the bad people. And you get that in D&D as well by having a sort of barbaric world um, and obviously every D&D campaign is different, every D&D world is different, but they have a few things in common. There is, you know, the wild just beyond the bounds, right? And there are um, villains either of the sort of straight-up monster type or the sort of insidious conspiracy cult type or whatever, but because of the way the game is made, you're going to have to fight them, and the fighting is involving combat roles and stuff. There's something beautifully primitive about it that only the most civilized among us can really appreciate, I think. And God, that actually sounds extremely snooty now that I hear myself <laughs> say it out loud. I might need to reconsider it. But 
Uh, but I'm hoping you and some of your listeners know what I'm getting at. I I, th- I kind of do, and hopefully the listeners do as well. I feel that that's kind of finding the roots of D&D from the, the Conan the Barbarian books, that it was yeah, that right, sort okay. of idea um, way mm, back when, that Conan is this roguish figure who goes and he he's a bad person at heart but the people he is fighting are very bad and his solution to them is either rob them or kill them and Mm. it's 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 like we know it's not that simple you can't just kill the bad person or rob them and take away whatever they've got but the way it's described the way it's written and how you get there it's like yeah if it was that simple it's that simple for conan he can just do those things it's that simple for, you know, Jack Reacher, too. Mm. It's like the, the same thing. In, um, if, it, if those books were real, then Jack Reacher would be described as, you know, America's most prolific serial killer. Like, so far, he's, he's murdered 88 or 90 people, and many of them not even in self-defense. Like, in almost every book, he says, like, get your retaliation in before first, you know, before they even do it. Um, someone looks at him sideways, and he just murders them to death. But uh, but there's something in us that loves those kinds of stories. The, um, the the barbarian, not just the barbarian, but the roaming barbarian. You know, going from town to town, doing these things. Hmm. And the, to kind of uh, an almost a, a doing good just because you're there. It's like I'm. I don't have any particular desire to help you people, but I I just there's a problem. I guess I'll solve it. Yeah. And continue yeah. on my way. I feel like that's the main difference between um, if you look at uh, someone like Jack Reacher or Conan the Barbarian and compare them to someone like Doctor Who. Like the, the Doctor Who story structure is more or less identical, right? The Doctor arrives in a new place, finds some people in trouble, um, saves them from the monsters, and then leaves again. The, uh, but there's a difference of intent in terms of the audience, I, I feel like. The... Um, the people watching Jack Reacher or reading Jack Reacher or reading Conan the Barbarian, they would not be satisfied with the victims just being rescued. They need the villains to be obliterated, <laughs> you know, whereas Doctor Who often kind of extends a helping hand to, to the villains and goes like, no, it's okay, you can learn to be different or, or he tries to save them and often succeeds, you know. There's that wonderful episode, I know this is a, a and d podcast, not a... No, no, go, go for it. I've been happy to talk about Doctor Who as well. Yeah, but there's that wonderful... Um, I had a feeling you might be. There's <laughs> that wonderful episode where there's the the nanomachine-type parasite that it's in World War One, and anyone infected by it is transformed into a 10-year-old kid with a gas mask saying, are you my mummy? And it's, like, terrifying. But uh, at the end, the Doctor actually, like implants some more dna into the system like he kind of teaches the nanomachines that no not all humans are a little boy in a gas mask you've actually over extrapolated from this one injured human that you found and then the nanomachines kind of fix everyone and no one so not only is the doctor saying hey everyone lives like he literally says that because it's a nice surprise doctor who has a really high body count um, which was one of the things I loved about it as a kid. I actually came to Doctor Who via the novels, like the novelizations, rather than via the show when I was younger. But, um, but yeah, the villain doesn't need to be defeated in that example. The villain only needs to be educated. 
Um, he even tries it on the Daleks from time to time. Like it never works, but, <laughs> but he at least has a go. I, I think that is to to go on to Doctor Who. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about it. I mean, that episode in particular. I occasionally watching it, I tear up because of how joyful he is when everybody gets to live because it happens so rarely for him that that one day, I mean, he's called the doctor. He fixes people. That's kind of yeah, the thing. Exactly. But he is also, there's those moments too, where he realizes someone is beyond saving and that is when they will be punished. And mm. I think that it doesn't happen very often, but when it happens, it is chilling because it's yeah. again. Yeah. And I, I don't think that one with the, um, there was some kind of spider monster and i know that doesn't narrow it down a whole lot but i feel like it was a david tennant episode which also doesn't narrow it down a whole lot but he definitely committed <laughs> yeah right he definitely committed some kind of genocide like not only killed the spider monster but also all the baby spiders and i remember one of his companions i forget if it was rose or maybe donna noble but like saying yeah, you think you don't need a companion anymore, but this is why you need a companion. Like, that's what actually keeps you from going over the edge and um, sometimes going all murder-hobo on the aliens. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of what we were saying before, that the um, the other people in the party kind of keep characters honest in that way. That yeah. when it's Conan, you can go out and you just do whatever you want. You do good things for selfish reasons. And when it's a group, you kind of need that shared goal of we're going to defeat the bad person because it's the right thing to do or we're working towards a common goal of of saving somebody's family or just collecting enough money to build a castle. Yeah, it is funny, isn't it, how typically a D&D party will have a range of people who would never associate in real life. Like you've got your your noble paladin who refuses to tell a lie or whatever, and you've got your rakish rogue who just pickpockets everybody. And in real life, those two people would never be friends. <laughs> but in, the, in fiction, they often make the best of, not the best of friends in that they like each other, but they make the most interesting on-screen pairing or on-page pairing. Like their their differences are what create the entertaining story. But in D&D, because the people who enjoy it are not, say, an audience, they're actually participating in the story, you're kind of forced to not just associate with, but team up with other people who are not like them and they would normally find repulsive. And I actually think that might be, maybe I'm overreaching here, but uh, one of the things that makes the game not so just so popular since the 70s, but particularly now when there's this enormous amount of pressure to kind of only associate with the person who shares your views, particularly politically, and everyone else is a monster. (laughs) You know, like uh, you've got your you've got where you are on the moral spectrum. Um, I often think of it as like, um, uh, I think of it in terms of how people think about eating meat. And this is something that I've come to just because of this this series that I wrote about a cannibal detective that you may or may not be familiar with. But I, um, I think you've got uh, some people who, some vegetarians who are not vegans, for example, Um, there's pressure on them to see carnivores as, you know, sorry, not carnivores, omnivores, um, as barbaric savages. But there's also pressure on them to see vegans as 
frivolous, silly people. So wherever you are on the moral spectrum on, on almost any issue, there's this pressure to see the people behind you as savages and the people ahead of you as frivolous and silly. And because of the internet, you know, you're not actually ever forced to change your view on anything. You just kind of only hang out digitally with the people who share your own opinions already. But with D&D, you are forced to A, become the sort of person you are not, and B, befriend the sorts of people that that sort of person wouldn't befriend and then work together towards a common goal. I actually think it's not just a fun thing and it's not just an important thing, but it's a beautiful thing that is sort of lacking from the society that we have at the moment or how we choose to set it up or how Facebook has chosen to set it up. Maybe that's an overreach, but, but it came out of my mouth, so I stand by it. I don't think it's an overreach. I think it is something that you can explore with D&D, that you can take a character to extremes and say, look, this isn't what I believe, but it's something that, I mean, if everyone else in the group is comfortable exploring those themes, it's a way to discuss them. I've got a, a one of my personal characters is a dwarf necromancer. In um, mm-hmm. And his previous life, before he really became an adventurer, he was a soldier and fought a lot of wars against goblins and other non I guess, monstrous races. So he is incredibly racist, incredibly yeah, racist right. against all these, these creatures. And one of the a group that was with us was a goblin. And for the first little while, he just did not see this, this, this other character as a person. He's like, no, no, send the goblin because if it gets killed, we don't care. And I developed that as it, as things happened as occasionally the goblin would save them and like trusting the goblin on watch and trusting these other characters to develop. It's like, it eventually just kind of became, I still don't like goblins, but that one is okay, which I feel is a step forward for a lot of racists because now they're there. But it was a little bit of, I see that around general culture a lot. And Mm. I want to see how that actually, how the brain sort of works for that. How does, how does someone see this world? How do they, and doing it, I realize it's so simple for them that this world is just so simple. You have me and you have everyone else. And it makes, Mm. I'm not going to say it was fun to play. It was certainly eye-opening to play. Yeah, right. I think um, it's one of the wonderful things, not only about, um, about D&D, but about making a work of art that no one else ever sees, right? I know that some people play D&D and they podcast it or they um, they release Twitch streams of it or whatever. And, and again, that's how I first discovered the game. So more, more power to those people. But certainly things, there's things that I've explored in uh, our D&D campaign that I would never put in one of my novels that's then sold in bookstores with my name on it, you know? <laughs> I have to be careful with things that will be read by by other people. And you end up with, in one of the early campaigns that I DM'd, there was a, a one of the characters had a backstory. So this was a character that I had created although I wasn't playing them. Um, he had a backstory that involved him being falsely accused of rape by um, by a princess. Um, so he hadn't done it, but she'd accused him of doing it. And that's something that I would never include in a book because that reinforces a dangerous negative stereotype, the idea that the woman is sometimes making it up for whatever reason. But because I wasn't publishing this, 
that meant there was actually no danger of perpetuating the stereotype because no one was ever going to hear about this character other than the four people sitting around the table playing the game. So that meant that I was free to include that in the game because it wasn't doing any harm, but you still get to explore the story and see if it changes your views on something. And similarly, and maybe even more problematically, <laughs> more recently, just because you brought up the, the goblin racist thing, uh, one of the adventures, I wasn't the one DMing, but it involved a group of goblins who were being sort of negatively, who were being targeted unfairly by the city watch and kind of beaten up and thrown off because the, the city watch was trying to claim a particular bit of land and was um, blaming the goblins for crimes they hadn't committed and then coming in with exercising extreme violence. And it wasn't inspired by the political events at the time that I know of, but this was happening at the height of the, the George Floyd protest. So we kind of had like a goblins live, goblin lives matter kind of thing going around the table. And I'm like, so on the one hand, I mean, we're, we're on the side of the goblins here. We're like defending them. But again, you wouldn't publish that because then the, the commentary on it would be like, you know, author compares black people to goblins. And that's obviously not what we are trying to do. But had we not explored that in the game, we wouldn't have ended up with that thing where we're kind of standing up to the city watch, firing arrows at them, trying to protect this bunch of goblins, and then kind of reflecting mid-combat on, wait, haven't we murdered a whole bunch of goblins just because they were goblins in the past <laughs> for no better reason than that? So you kind of end up reflecting on your own in-game prejudice during the combat scene in a way that, again, you can't do it in public, but in private, if you explore it in private, you can learn something and learn something good and maybe become a better person because of it. It's it's kind of that idea that these discussions need to be had and a lot of the time they need to be had by people who don't have a vested interest in, in changing things. And it's so that you yeah. can understand what's going on. I mean, we could get onto into a whole bunch of social justice and geopolitical things, but I, I think this is one of the things, particularly about that goblin incident, that this is happening so frequently in the world that it doesn't need to be about any particular incident that you use the trope and it becomes relevant in the game it's just if somebody has a, a plague in a game that it just happens to be oh people are getting sick and you have it the game was planned years ago or the adventure was planned years ago and you start running it last year suddenly it's very contemporary and you realize maybe this is a little on the nose, maybe people shouldn't be getting sick, maybe I don't want to run this game anymore because it feels a little bit too real. But from that, I want to, just wondering that do you bring, when you're planning adventures as a, a dungeon master, do you bring in plots from your books or do you have something occur in a game and go, oh, that's really interesting, we only did this much of it in the game, but maybe I want to draw it out a little bit and see how it, how it rolls and whether I can put some other characters into it and, and build a story around it. Um, I've almost never drawn anything for the games from my books. Um, the main reason being that uh, Writer Jack is who I am nine to five, Monday to Friday. So it's not that writing isn't fun. It is fun, but it's also work. So whereas D&D um, &D is where I kind of loosen my tie and put my feet up and, and don't really want to think about work. So when I'm DMing, the plots uh, that I DM almost always are rip-offs of 1980s action movies. <laughs> oh, excellent. That's <laughs> so, fantastic. Like, 
one of the first ones I ever did. Um, but I like to not tell the players that until they realize for themselves. So there was one of the first ones we ever did. It was a, um, a couple of the players were on a ship. They were traveling to an island. They'd been asked by the rich guy who, um, who ran the island to, uh, to inspect the security settings or, or all their security protocols for the island. And he'd hired them as experts. And when they got there, they discovered like a whole bunch of enclosures with dragons in them. And he's like, welcome to Draconic Park. And then finally the players realize what's going to happen. And similarly, there was another one where they, um, they saw another ship floating out on, uh, on the reef and there was like a distress signal flag that they couldn't see anybody alive. And when they got there, they found that um, most of the crew or all of the crew appeared to be dead with kind of their, their ribs twisted outwards. And they eventually discovered that it was the ship from Alien, but floating because, because it's D&D as opposed to being a spaceship and stuff. Um, and I've done Resident Evil as well, which I know oh, is yes. not the 80s, but yes. that was a lot of fun too. I have actually um, gone through and found the, the maps for the res- first Resident Evil game and started to build that as a, a dungeon where you get trapped inside and there's a couple of zombies and there's like all this mystery stuff going on and you've got to find the different keys for which areas are locked off because I feel no one's going to get it just from the map you throw zombies and yeah. everyone knows what you're doing but you have a map and it's like it's some weird mansion I guess I go, yeah that's that's very clever I actually for my Resident Evil one I was basing it on um, uh, on the first Movie, so I did play the games and read the books, but but I uh, particularly loved the Resident Evil movies, even the bad ones. And the first isn't that one, all of them? <laughs> no, it's the the odd numbered ones, excluding the first one. Now, that's my theory. Uh, but oh, and one of them even has a dragon in it. <laughs> oh, that's too. <laughs> if God. you watch them all the way to the end, but there was. Uh, uh, I was able to find just sort of a randomly generated dungeon map on on the internet and i kind of just kept hitting the randomize button until i saw something that looked about right or particularly i was looking for something that had a corridor where i could do that scene where sort of wires come out of the walls and sweep towards the characters and try to chop them into cubes like happens in that resident evil movie so i um the players got me back for it though because i've been obsessed with um with mili ovovich for a very long time she's my my favorite actor i see all her movies and um then in a subsequent adventure the whoever was dming that one actually i don't think i was there i think i listened to the recording later because we used to record some of them and um they the characters fought a sea witch who was described as looking exactly like overrated actress (laughs) so they kind of inserted her into the adventure as the villain just because they knew i would hear the recording later that's fantastic. That's that's what I feel a lot of groups end up doing. That there are those in jokes. That is about it's about friends at a table, and you're just telling jokes in yeah. between, and you're making the world yours through your shared experience and through your shared joys. Indeed. And speaking of friends at the table, and what we were talking about with sort of prejudice and learning and stuff just just before, um, I think there is something really special about exploring uh, moral questions, some of which are a bit taboo, um, with a bunch of people 
who with whom you not only have a common goal, but you've been playing this same game every week or every couple of weeks with them for a while. So that means no one's going to attack you. <laughs> it's a it's a safe space, and that's the only kind of space where learning can happen. It's quite different from having those discussions with uh, with strangers on the internet. You know. Yes, strangers on the internet rarely have good advice. I found. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I shouldn't be rude about strangers on the internet because they provide a, a lot of very useful book research for me. But um, but I very rarely have the inclination to meet anyone in real life. <laughs> and I know that um, people tell me that friendships are forged on the internet, but uh, it must just not be my way. It doesn't <laughs> happen in my experience. My my friends are the people I went to high school with, or more accurately, the people I went to year eleven and twelve with. I. I, 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 the people I went to high school with would not want to associate with me now. And so I probably wouldn't want to associate with them then. But the friendships I forged a little bit later when I was sort of just on the cusp of adulthood, those are the ones that have just stayed. And there's, there's no one I've found so entertaining to associate with online that I have any inclination to kind of draw them into that circle. I, I think that's a very, a, such a true comment that you do become this this semi-found family of these people. You have these shared interests, you have this shared experience. Certainly, I my um, regular D&D group is one that I found, well, actually through an ad on the internet where I was just going, I want to start playing again. And they've become some of my best friends that I consider yeah, family. Cool. And it's been, it's been wonderful. And it really was because of the game. If I'd just been talking to them, I feel like we wouldn't have had that connection as often. Um, but being able to play yeah, D&D right. together has has changed how that relationship has become. And a couple of them on my other podcast, it's like, this is what we do now. We have a podcast together. Um, quick plug for yeah. it at Dyson DMs. Everyone go check it out. It's a great episode this week on Warlocks. So <laughs> I, I got to throw that in. Otherwise, um, they yell at me as yeah, families I do. I will subscribe right away. And you're <laughs> right about those um those special connections because they would have saved your life from time to time. You would have saved theirs, you know, you and perhaps more crucially, they will have risked their own lives to save yours. You know, once you've had a couple of those experiences, even though they're fake, the it's like your brain doesn't know it's fake. <laughs> that loyalty persists. Because the character that you're, you play becomes real for you and someone else investing in that character as well. Somebody else saying this character is important enough for me that my imaginary character is going to protect them. My imaginary character is going to put their life on the line for your imaginary character. It's, mm. it feels like it's the same thing. It's like, Oh, that's so sweet of you to, to heal me when I was down. It's like, yeah. And occasionally it's, yeah, we need you back in the battle so you can actually do some damage. And sometimes it's like, no, no, they're friends. We're friends. Of course I'm going to help you out. Yeah, that's right. And I think particularly if you're, Male, maybe this is an overgeneralization, but there's, um, it's probably not controversial to say that there's a certain amount of social pressure on men not to have their, have any feelings, or if they do have feelings, not to reveal those feelings or anything like that. And um, this is hopefully less and less true. Maybe some of your younger listeners won't, um, won't empathize with what I'm talking about, but in the generation that I grew up with, like you didn't you definitely didn't want to express any kind of affection for a male friend for fear of people thinking you were gay like that was just the environment that i grew up in right but 
if you play D&D, so maybe there's a stereotype that, you know, D&D is mostly for men, and that's changing too. But um, certainly the, the stereotype persists, even if it's no longer accurate. But I think maybe a part of that is, you know, two, two male friends who would struggle to even hold eye contact for too long um, because they've, they've so internalised that sort of emotional repression... Um, if you give them fictitious characters to play and they can save one another's lives and, you know, really show how much they care about one another, it's like sometimes you've got the real-life friendships can only be explored through the fictitious ones. It's like a, a safe way to say that you care about another person. You know, I've certainly felt a little bit of that through the game as well. Mm, no, I think that's that's very true. Again, it's that safe space to kind of kind of explore um, not or maybe not explore is the is the right word. Just kind of express. Express. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, there was something I wanted to mention. Actually, going back to just kind of the the fiction we were talking about earlier, particularly the ones that you like to put in your games, because your your writing is very different from say the the fantasy genre of of D and D. And I'm just wondering, is that sort of this escape for you, like something that you want to express that doesn't always come through on your writing? Because it feels like a lot of the media you consume doesn't quite fit with the, the fantasy genre either, going with Resident Evil, Doctor Who, with the ones you've mentioned, Jack Reacher being another example. And I'm just wondering, is that because, or do you choose D&D over a different role-playing game because it has that fantasy element you don't get from other properties? Um, or would you be interested in trying the other games as well learning the rules and just going, well, cool, now I can be a 20s gangster who's after the Maltese Falcon. Now I can be the doctor, say, or going around, going around and still have that same sort of connection with your friends, but a different setting and a different style of play. Yeah, that's really interesting. I went through um, a phase. There was definitely a phase in my life where I would kind of only read fantasy. And this was kind of in my my early teens. So I was really into fantasy novels. And then later I kind of switched to sci-fi and abandoned um, fantasy altogether. And then switched to crime and pretty much abandoned uh, sci-fi. And now I, I'm still a, a bit of a... And I try to be a voracious reader in all genres because I think it makes me a better writer. I, I don't just read the things that are in the genre that I already know I like. Um, I take risks with my reading in the hope that, that it'll just, you know, help. I, I'm not sure anyone actually ha- truly has a literary voice, but if they have a whole bunch of other literary voices to borrow from and they're not all in the same section of the bookstore, then that's likely to be a little bit richer. But Having said that, I still don't read a lot of fantasy. Um, and D&D, so part of it, the, the, the fantasy worldness of it does appeal to me in part because it's so different to anything else I do. Like it's, it's nothing like my writing. It's not very much like my reading. Um, it's not like any of the TV shows or, or movies or anything that I watch when, whenever I do get around to watching one. So... I end up, um, uh, so it's it's very easy for me to mentally segregate D&D Jack from, from the, the rest of my world. And I think there's a certain pleasure in that. Um, and I also think, though, that because D&D is kind of, 
I mean, it describes itself as the world's greatest role-playing game. I don't know if that's accurate because I haven't played enough other role-playing games to know, but certainly it seems to be extraordinarily popular. <laughs> so it's for people interested in exploring role-play, sorry, exploring role-playing games, not exploring role-play. Um, Slightly it different. Ends yeah. Up being, yeah. <laughs> it, it ends up being sort of the default choice. So I guess it was for me as well. Um, and I'm not terribly interested in learning anything else because I'd have to learn a whole bunch more mechanics. And for me, the fun is in the role play rather than in the learning the new mechanics and stuff like that. I, I There's an appeal to me in chance-based collaborative storytelling, but not necessarily in sort of the mathematical side of it, if that makes any sense. Having said all of that, though, um, I recently saw in a shop um, Die Hard, the board game. And my emotional roller coaster was first saying to myself, that sounds like the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Die Hard is the opposite of a board game. Board games are sort of quiet and sedate and sensible. And Die Hard is, you know, this sort of wild, out of control, um, but nevertheless Swiss watch precision sort of thriller. And then I picked up the box off the shelf and looked at the back and it said, uh, three players play as thieves, one player plays as John McClane. And I went, I'm already on board. Like I went from, <laughs> from thinking that sounds like the dumbest thing I've ever heard of to thinking that sounds awesome and I must play it if only I had enough money to buy it. it we're in the space of, you know, four seconds. And then, um, I told my wife that, and she's like, I am buying you that game, darling. <laughs> so she did immediately. You know, she bought the game. I haven't played it yet. It looks very complicated, but I'm looking forward to doing a bit of role play as either John McClane or, or Hans Gruber. Like, I, it's, it's fun to explore those characters. I feel games like that are perfect to just kind of dip your toe into role play because you have that that archetype of John McClane already. So you already know, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to do the voice and I'm going to be running around and saying, ha ha, ho, 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 now I've got a machine gun and things like that. And the thieves just like, I don't even know who this guy is. I'm just going to run like, (laughs) run. And that's, again, you're saying that Dungeons and Dragons claiming to be the world's greatest role-playing game. And it's um, the first step for a lot of people that they hear a podcast, they hear, they see it on Twitch. But I feel that the games like Die Hard, they just kind of, kind of wet the appetite a little bit. And then you go, oh, that was fun. There's a game that lets me do that all the time. Yeah, I'm going to try that out. Yeah, and just to be, um, it's actually true of all games. I mean, they don't necessarily, uh, maybe not all games, but but most. Like if you have a, uh, a game like Checkers, and you compare that to a game like uh, maybe maybe not the the diehard game, but you compare checkers to Monopoly, right? So in both cases, you're just making moves. Some by chance. Oh, actually, checkers doesn't have a lot of chance in it, but you're kind of just moving tokens around a board in both cases. But one of those games allows you to pretend to be something. And in Monopoly, you wouldn't call a role-playing game, but you're certainly pretending that you're hoarding money, right? And there's this enormous amount of satisfaction 
from you know picking up these sort of hundred dollar notes and waving them around at the people you're defeating then you wouldn't get that level of satisfaction if they were just kind of tokens that meant nothing so adding role play to any game makes it more satisfying and i have a friend actually sorry one of my dungeons and dragons friends um his name is paul he was the one who dm'd the last adventure for us and he's a wonderful dm i'm crazy jealous of his skill but he also created a video game called Boomerang Foo. And it's a couch multiplayer game where everyone, you play as pieces of fruit who have razor sharp boomerangs and just slash one another to death. That's basically the gist of the game. Actually, not just fruit. There's a sushi roll. There's a, there's a, a carton of milk, that kind of thing. And that sounds cool. It's very cool. But the point that I'm actually trying to slowly, painfully make my way towards is that I I was part of the early testing stage for this game, and that meant that I got to play it when you were not food. You were just little squares that moved around the screen, and the squares would fling circles at one another. So you've got your squares, you've got your circles, and it was fun to play. I enjoyed it. And I said, so are you going to release it? And Paul's like, no, nah, it needs proper art, and it needs a theme, and it needs to have characters and stuff. And I'm like, man, that sounds like a lot of work it's already taken you so long just to get to this stage with squares and circles. You should release it now. You might make a, at least a little bit of money. But he held out because he's a perfectionist. And, um, and I kind of secretly suspected that he would never get it done because he's such a perfectionist and had so many other projects on the go. I was like, this game is never going to see the light of day. That's so sad. And, but instead, he hired artists. He playtested more and more. Suddenly, there was a banana suddenly they weren't circles anymore they were boomerangs suddenly the levels instead of being just sort of blank were these beautiful japanese garden type things and i played it and even though it's mathematically the same game it is so much more fun to play and so he absolutely made the right choice and made you know a stack of sales as well the game has been a huge success um so I think even with video games, adding role play to it, the, the role play is a huge part of the success. The, the freedom to imagine that you are someone else, even if it's not someone that you've seen on the big screen, like John McClane or, or anyone you otherwise admire. I think I say this uh, on a lot, of, a lot of episodes and a lot of time. I think it's that quest for narrative that we as a species always have that like using the example before that kind of a, a snakes and ladders or shoots and ladders versus monopoly shoots and ladders doesn't have that much of a, a plot you just kind of roll the dice and you move forward and one person win one person loses but going around the board in monopoly you start to develop rivalries with other people because you get three stations and they want they've got the last one and you're like i, I wanted they're like no no you can't have it and it it develops this story as you go around and as you play and someone goes bankrupt early on and i think that's sort of why it's that mini role play of finding a story and same with video games that when it's just circles and squares there's no anthropomorphization of it there's no real projection of of my brain onto this character once you have a banana there it's suddenly okay I'm not a banana, but I, it's got a face and eyes. And I, I start to think, well, what am I going to do? Because I'm that banana. You can project a little bit more. And yeah, yeah it's, it's right. that little bit of aspect of role playing. I do realize yeah. we're running running a bit low on, well, not late on time, I guess. So we, we should wrap it up. But one thing I wanted to ask, uh, when, if you were someone, a, a race from one of the, from D&D, I was going to make it a what character class you would be, but since I ask generally creative types, I'd mostly say bard. So I've gone with race. What do you feel you would 
be most like? Like, say, elf or uh, dragonborn or tiefling, or what would you most like to be? Yeah. Oh, well, so what I'd be most like and what I'd most like to be are probably quite different things. I, I feel like I am, um, in real life, I have a, a bit of the, the elf about me. You know, I am happiest in a tower with a scroll to read, <laughs> you know, um, often far from the action, but always kind of in the pursuit of wisdom, whether I find it or not. And, um, uh, but of course in, in the game, I chose to be this sort of halfling rogue thing. And again, it's that thing of opposites. Like, I, I don't know if you remember from, from meeting me 15 years ago, but I'm, I'm quite tall. I sort yes. of end up looking down on most people. So playing as a halfling again, like even in the choice of race, I'm kind of role playing the, the thing that I don't get to do in real life. So yeah, in, in real life, I'm a bit of an elf, um, uh, for better and for worse. Uh, but, but in the game, I'm absolute, uh, you know, half, halfling um, troublemaker all the way. That's fantastic. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Uh, it's really been a, a pleasure talking with you this evening. Uh, where can people find you online? If they want to check out your books, they can just go to any good bookstore across the world. Um, but if they want to see more news, um, social media, anything you want to plug um, that's just come out? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so my newest book is called 200 Minutes of Danger, uh, 10 stories with 10 kids in 10 dangerous situations and 200, oh, you know what? I gave you the wrong title. 200 Minutes of Mystery, 200 Minutes of Danger is a completely different book about 10 stories with 10 dangerous situations and whatnot. That one's for kids. My adult books are the Hangman series, Hangman, Hunter and Hideout so far, Cannibal Detective for fun. And um, you can find me at jackheathwriter.com and at jackheathwriter on all social media. Although, um, full disclosure, I tend to only be on it when I have a book about to come out. So it's a long time between tweets for me. <laughs> I don't think that's uncommon. I know I generally am only on social media when I'm plugging the podcast uh, for the most part. Uh, and the last thing I do ask every guest to do is to say farewell to our listeners as their character. In this case, maybe Han Ultra can say uh, goodbye to everybody. <laughs> it's funny because I um, I listened to previous episodes of your podcast, so I had the opportunity to prepare something and I didn't take it. <laughs> so instead, uh, Han Ultra would say, um, pardon me, dear fellow, I appear to have forgotten my wallet. Could I borrow some money for a carriage home? I promise I'll send it to you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.